following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, we are in this series at the moment, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. If you're just joining us today, uh, this is the greatest sermon ever preached from the lips of Jesus himself. Uh, it's recorded in the Gospels, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we've spent some time just working our way through the sermon. I, I know I probably say this every week, but I think today we come to the passage that's maybe the most challenging in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, possibly the most radical thing that Jesus ever said. Um, and it's easy for us to gloss past it, but these words are really striking and confronting and uncomfortable and difficult. And so that's what it's going to be this morning. But this is the commitment that we have when you work through a, a, a passage or a book of Scripture like this. You let the Scripture lead and you let the Scripture speak. So we're not cherry-picking the passages that we like here. We're dealing with the, the things that are difficult to hear as well as the things that are really pleasant to hear. And I think today is one of those passages that's a bit more difficult to hear. But that's good for us, right? Okay. You're not sure, are you? Not convinced? You're really nervous now. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, verse uh, 43, quick glance at the screen. Bethany Turner is going to come and read this passage for us today. Thanks, Bethany. Oh, Rebecca, is it? Okay, <laughs> you got the short straw, Rebecca. Good on you. Thank you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thanks, Rebecca. Great. That's a nice, easy one this morning, isn't it? But just be perfect. <laughs> Amen. Let's go home. I want to start with a video this morning, a short video. This is uh, an ad that was, uh, it's been running in the US recently, part of an ad campaign called He Gets Us. Some of you might have heard this, uh, a series of ads made by Christians in the US to uh, really raise the profile of the Christian faith and the person of Jesus. One of these ads played at the last US Super Bowl, so it's been quite high profile. And this particular ad, it is quite specific to the US context, and you'll see that from the images, but it's not too hard, I think, to translate it into our context here. So let's watch this. You can see the way that's, that's picking up on a lot of the stuff that's going on with the US culture wars, racial issues, cultural issues, and so on. But you can connect the dots, can't you, to our own context here. We've got the same sorts of issues and the same sorts of divisions and the same sorts of culture wars over here, just with a few different shades and emphases. Uh, there was a survey done last year by the New Zealand Herald uh, interviewing people around the question, do you think that in the last few years New Zealand has become more divided, more united, or much the same? 64% of people said we have become more divided as a nation, and I think they're probably right. Coming out of COVID, coming out of the last few years, I think, sadly, that's probably true, that we are a more divided nation, more socially divided nation today than we were a few years ago. There's just, we're living in a world where there is such massive polarization, not just New Zealand, 
uh, globally, and I think particularly Western countries, we're a globally connected uh, world now, and there is an entrenched polarization now around all sorts of issues, whether they are racial or political, cultural, social, economic, religious, and so on. We have this entrenched tribalism now, which is so toxic that we have, you know, we all have our own little tribe, we've got our team, we've got our community, we've got the people who think like us, we've got the people who see life like us, we've got the people who have all of our beliefs and our values, our worldview, who are like us, and then there's the others, and that's them, and generally we are maybe at best suspicious of them, and at worst we're openly angry and hostile and antagonistic towards them. It used to be that tolerance was a virtue in our society. I remember growing up, and in the 90s, it felt like everyone was talking around tolerance. It doesn't feel like anyone's talking about tolerance now. I think intolerance is more the rage now. It's almost fashionable to be dismissive, derogatory, and insulting towards the people we don't like. Social media fuels it massively, but this is the world that we're living in now. This is the world in which we are now trying to live out our faith as Christians. It's this world of us and them. And sadly, it's as true in the church as it is anywhere else, right? Us and them on all sorts of issues, not just Christian, non-Christian, all sorts of issues. And even though we might not want to use the word enemy like Jesus does, I think that's a lot of the time how we see them, whoever they are. We see them as the enemy and we tend to treat them accordingly. So Jesus has got some hard things to say to us this morning if we're willing to listen. I think this is one of those passages that we can easily kind of gloss past, and it's a nice idea to love your enemies, but really this is a huge word of challenge to us today, if we're really willing to hear it, because it is so fundamentally different to the way most of us operate. It's just completely countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It's counter pretty much everything in our lives. So I want to encourage you to be open to this to be open to what the Word is saying to you this morning. Please don't apply this to the person next to you. Please don't apply this to the other person, whoever you don't like, and the person who doesn't like you, and think, oh, yeah, they, they, they do need to love me more. Yeah, they do need to hear this message. Yeah, if they were a bit nicer, that's what God's saying to them. How about you apply this to yourself today? Let's start there, okay? And just allow yourself to sit in the discomfort of what Scripture might be saying to you this morning, because discomfort can be a place of conviction, okay? And that's a good thing. All right, let's dive in. Verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is an interesting uh, quotation from the Old Testament. You know, we've been talking about how Jesus is reaching back to the Old Testament, and this is the last in that section, the last time he's going to do that. But interestingly, this quote from the Old Testament, only half of it's in the Old Testament. So when he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, only the love your neighbor part is actually in the Old Testament. Like that is definitely there. Love your neighbor. That's in Leviticus. That was a very clear commandment for the nation of Israel. Love your neighbor. But hate your enemy is not in the Old Testament anywhere. God never gave Israel a law saying, hate, you must hate your enemy. That's not there. So what happened? Well, most likely what happened is the Israelites just made some assumptions. And they thought, well, if God told me to love my neighbor, I guess my enemy is the opposite of my neighbor. I guess hate is the opposite of love. Ergo, I should hate my enemy. That must be what God wants me to do. And this was basically then became the way of life for the Israelites. And they would define their neighbor as their fellow Jewish countrymen. 
So love your neighbor meant love other people who were the Israelite, within the Israelite community. And then everyone else was the enemy. And what are we called to do to our enemies? Hate them. And that's why the Jewish people took a pretty dim view of the other nations. This is in ancient times. But those outside of God's people, they tended to look down on. These were the enemy. And this is what they believed God was wanting them to do, even though that wasn't explicitly there in the law. So then Jesus comes along, and he's now reforming the law. He's reinterpreting the law around his own fulfillment of these things. And he says in verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies. Three radical words. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The word love is the word agape. Have you heard that word before? Agape. It's quite familiar. What's interesting about agape is it is the most common word for love inside the Bible, and it's the most uncommon word for love outside the Bible. So in the Greek language, there's a whole lot of words for love. They had way more words for love than we do in English. They had storge and eros and phileo and all these different. There was word for romantic love, word for friendship love, and word for affectionate love, and words for long-term love, all of these different nuances of love. But agape was not a very common, not a very commonly used word at all. And Jesus plucks this word out of relative obscurity and places it right at the center of his teaching. And it becomes right at the heart of the biblical story. Agape love is self-giving love. It's not just friendship. It's certainly not just a feeling of love. It's self-giving love. It's a love that places the other, whoever the other is, above yourself. It's a love that looks at them, whoever they are, and lifts them up rather than tears them down. It's a love that seeks the interests of the other above yourself, that looks to the needs of the other above yourself, that looks to the preferences of the other above yourself. It is the self-giving love. And it is exactly the same type of love that God has shown you. That's why this is so significant. The whole foundation of what Jesus is saying here, he, he would never call you to do something that he's never done himself. God never asks us to do stuff that he's never first done for us. And agape love is the whole foundation of our love for other people. Romans 5, 8 and 10 says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So those two words, love and enemies, are right there in reference to God's relationship with you. So what that means is every one of us at one time were God's enemies. I don't know whether you, you've thought about yourself as an enemy of God before. We don't tend to think that way, do we? We think, well, I was never God's enemy. I never made myself an enemy of God. I never attacked God. I was never abusive towards God, even when I was a non-Christian. It's not like I was hostile towards God. But even in the way that before you became a Christian, if you're a Christian, even the way in which we lived lives that were just selfish and self-glorifying and just self-focused and self-obsessed, and we just did what we wanted to do, and we lived without giving a single thought to God. In doing that, in living that way, we were making ourselves enemies of God, and we were positioning ourselves against Him. You can become an enemy of God passively as well as actively, just by living in complete independence and denial of Him in your life. That is making yourself an enemy of God. And by making ourselves an enemy of God, we then put ourselves under His judgment, under His punishment, which is to be separated from Him. 
But Bible says, here's how God has treated his enemies. Not with judgment, not with punishment, not with condemnation, but with love. God has moved towards even those of us who were his enemies with this incredible kindness and compassion. And he sent his son into the world to suffer and bleed and die on a cross that we could be reconciled to him. That's what God did for you when you were still his enemy. When you turned your back on him and you were hostile towards him and you wanted nothing to do with him, God moved towards you with this unbelievable, unconditional love that wasn't based on how good you were or how you treated him. It was just based on his own incredible love for you. And he's now reconciled you to himself. He's moved you from being an enemy to being a friend. That's the journey you've gone on if you're a Christian. You may not even see it that way, but you have gone on this transition from being an enemy of God to now being a friend, now being a child of God. So that's the journey God's taken you on. And that's why now Jesus says here, now, out of all that God has done for you, that God has loved you when you were his enemy, now what I'm asking you to do, says Jesus, is to turn towards the people that you think are your enemies And I want you to show a little bit of that same love to them. I want you to turn towards the people that make your life difficult, the people that you might rightly or wrongly consider to be your enemies, and I want you to allow the love I've shown you to flow through you to them because I loved you while you were my enemy. I want you to love them while they are your enemy. It's all one movement from God through us towards the people in our lives that we find really hard. The whole basis of our love for our enemies is the love of God for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Nazi Germany and uh, had the challenge of leading churches, leading a church under a government that was seeking to co-opt the church for its own purposes. And so he knew what it was to have an enemy. And he writes this, the Christian must treat his enemy as a brother and requiet his hostility with love. His behavior must be determined not by the way others treat him, but by the treatment he himself receives from Jesus. It has only one source, and that is the will of Jesus. So in other words, the way that you treat others, especially people you might consider to be your enemies, has nothing to do with the way they treat you. That is not the determining factor. That is not the barometer that you use. It's not about what they've done to you. It's not about how bad they are. It's not about what names they've called you. It's not about how difficult they've made life for you. The determining factor in how we treat other people is how Jesus has treated us. That's it. That's what we look to. And we say, man, if he has shown such incredible love to me while I was his enemy, can I not show a little bit of that same agape love, self-giving love, towards this person? So let's think about this in our lives, try and make it practical. Who are our enemies? I think it's, it's, it's just a bit too easy to generalize and say, oh, yeah, I love my enemies. Yeah, I follow Jesus. I love my enemies. Whoever they are, I love them. God bless them. But it's a bit too easy when it's just like this big, morphous group of people that don't have any names and any real identities. Of course, you can love them. That's just a, that's just a group. That's a generality. But let's be specific. The word enemy is the word ekthros, and it just simply means the one who opposes you. So if you were a Jew listening to Jesus, most likely you hear enemy, you're going to think the Romans. 
that would have been your first thought. The Romans were the oppressor. They were the ones who had come into the land, stolen the land. They were oppressing the Jewish people. They were crippling them with heavy taxes. You would be thinking, these Romans, these filthy dogs who have invaded our land, these are the enemies. And it would have been unbelievable for you to hear Jesus saying to you, I want you to love them. I want you to show agape, self-giving love to these, these Romans. These, these people didn't even deserve to be in the land. They've stolen our land. They've got their foot on our neck. And you want me to love them? Some of Jesus' disciples were ready to take up arms against the Romans. And Jesus says, no, put your sword down. I want you to love them. I want you to show agape. So who are our enemies? Well, I think there's two different types of enemies we can have. There are people who can oppose you directly. So these are people who there's something going on between you and them, and in some way they are opposing you in your life. It could be literally your neighbor who's just making things difficult for you, and they've become your enemy. It could be a family member that you're estranged from. It could be someone that there's just this frostiness in your relationship with them, and it's really, really difficult. Maybe you haven't spoken to them for a long time. Maybe there's just an all-out feud with them. They are your enemy. You may not use the term enemy. That's fine. It's probably best not to, but I'm just trying to define the categories for you. It could be a family member. It could be someone that you used to know really well, used to be close to. You've had some falling out with them, and now it's really bad between you, and they are your enemy. It could be someone that you are in the middle of legal litigation with. It could be a legal conflict going on, and that person is your enemy, someone who opposes you. But here's the thing. It doesn't just have to be someone who opposes you directly and personally. I think often the people we perceive as our greatest enemies are the people we don't even know. And it's probably easier to think of them as enemies when you don't know them because they're not flesh and blood in front of you. So what we tend to do is we tend to have groups of people who are our enemies as Christians. All right, let's just be really practical and nameless. A lot of Christians think that other religions are their enemies. Right? We assume atheists are our enemies, especially the really annoying ones like Richard Dawkins, who writes stuff against Christianity and just kind of blindside the whole Christian faith. And so we sort of think, yeah, those atheists, they are our enemies. Or we think Muslims are our enemies. And we assume it's, it's a different religion that I believe what we believe they are our enemies. I think sadly, sometimes Christians see LGBTQ people as the enemy. Would that be right? It's not comfortable to admit that, is it? But I think this is the reality. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians see people who are gay and transgender particularly as the enemy because they may hold values and convictions that are different to us. And so we sort of draw these lines. They are the enemy. We treat them with suspicion. We treat them with disdain. We treat them, I think, the opposite of the way Jesus would treat them. We see them as the enemy. Sometimes we just see people on the other side of the political spectrum to us as the enemy. It's those, it's those far right people, or it's those far left people, or if you're one of those people, then it's the people in the center who are the enemy. You know, wherever you are, it's the people on the other end or in the middle or whatever who are the enemy. The people who are not on your team, we think of them as the enemy. Sometimes conservative Christians think that's those liberals who are the enemy, and the liberals, of course, you know what, they conservatives, they're the enemy. Everyone else thinks it's the Presbyterians who are our enemy. We just, you know, pick the, pick the group. It doesn't matter. We've all got some category of people, and we think those ones are the other. It is us, and it is them, 
And we can be so derogatory and so mean-spirited in the way that we treat them and speak about them and speak to other people about them. And it is the opposite of what Jesus calls us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. You may not, that, that doesn't require you, I don't think, to feel loving towards them because agape is not really a highly emotional word. It's not calling you to have a whole lot of warm fuzzies. We think of love today and we sort of define it in these very emotional terms, but love is just simply considering the other, loving by lifting up the other. So you may not feel love towards that group, and I don't think you need to sit around waiting to feel loving towards them, otherwise you'd be waiting forever. But you, the call is to speak well of them and to think well of them and to act well towards them. That is what it means to love our enemies. Jesus gives us two reasons why we should love our enemies. Back to Matthew 5. He says, first of all, verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So in other words, God doesn't make distinctions between people. He gives his, this is his common grace. He gives common grace to all people, right? It's not just like God causes the sun just to rise on Christians. He causes the sun and the rain, everybody, because God doesn't make these distinctions. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to make distinctions. I don't want you only to love the people who love you back. By loving your enemies, Jesus is saying, you become children of your Father in heaven. Now, what does that mean? In one sense, we're already God's children, aren't we? When we become Christians, we are children of God already. That's we get adopted into God's family. But what Jesus is saying is, when you take steps to love the ones who hate you, you look a little bit more like your Father. It's like children have the same kind of quirks as their parents, you know? How children look like their parents and they have the same kind of, like you see someone and they've just got this kind of weird laugh or something. You're like, why have you got this strange laugh? And then you see their mum. I see your mum. You know, it's like children and parents and you can see, oh yeah, you're like, that's where you get it from, that weird little quirky thing. It's your dad that does that. So this is how it works. When you take a step of love towards someone who is the them, who is the other, Jesus looks at you and goes, man, you are just like your father, heavenly father. That's what Jesus is thinking. When you, in the power of the Holy Spirit, take a radical step of love towards your enemy, Jesus looks at you and goes, you are becoming just a little bit more like your heavenly father, aren't you? Because that's what he's like. That's exactly what he's like. And that's exactly what he's done for you. So we are becoming more like our Heavenly Father, when we take these steps of loving our enemies. Second reason we're called to love our enemies is in verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? I think probably when Matthew wrote this, he maybe wrote it with a little smile because he was a tax collector. You know, he's writing the stuff that's kind of a little bit of a dim view of tax collectors here because tax collectors in the first century is way worse than working for the IRD today, right? And that's bad, but tax collectors are way worse. No, it's fine if you work for the IRD. God bless you. But tax collectors, they were really seen as the collaborators with Rome. It's like working for the enemy. You're working for the oppressor. You're collecting the taxes that are killing us here. And so Matthew was a tax collector. 
That was his job before he met Jesus and before he became a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is kind of, you know, I can imagine when he said this little bit, he gave Matthew a little wink. Even the tax collectors, Matthew, man, even those tax collectors, even they know how to love each other. Like it's not hard, is it, Matthew, to love the ones that love you back? Even the pagans do that. You know, and this is true, right? I mean, the world knows how to love each other. Everybody out there, they know how to love the people that love them back. That's just normal life. In fact, that sometimes just entrenches our own sense of tribalism. Everybody loves the people that love them and have time. Everyone loves the people on their own team. But here is the point at which the Christian faith looks radically different to the world. Here is the point at which the church is to be set apart from the world. That we love not only the ones who love us back, but we love the ones who insult us, who spit in our face, who write nasty things about us and talk about us behind our backs. We love those ones. Why on earth do we do it? Because you follow a Savior who, when he was having the nails driven through his hands, what did he pray? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus loved his enemies. He didn't pray, Father, condemn them. He didn't pray, Father, rebuke them. He didn't pray, Father, judge them. He prayed, Father, forgive them. That's our Savior. I don't know who you thought you signed up to follow when you became a Christian. I don't know who you think you're following. I don't know who you think Jesus is, but that's who he is. He's a Savior who loves his enemies all the way to the cross, all the way to death. They insult him. He blesses them. They spit in his face. He loves them anyway. That's your Savior. When you bow the knee and you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's who you became a disciple of. And now he says, here's what it means. We take up our cross and we follow Jesus. Man, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it leaves that awful sense of injustice in your mouth. But this is nothing less than what it means to be a devoted disciple of Jesus that we say, I'm willing to go there, Jesus, even to love my enemies, because that's what you've done. And that's what you've done for me. And this is what makes us different to the world. The world needs to see this. When the world sees this kind of love, the world sits up and takes notice because it recognizes it don't get this kind of love anywhere else. The world saw it, I think, in the 1960s with Martin Luther King Jr., who was first a Christian and a pastor before he was a civil rights activist. And he knew what it was to have enemies too. And he wrote something and said something about loving your enemies. He said, To our most bitter opponents, we say, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process 
and our victory will be a double victory. He knew what it was to love his enemies. And he loved them all the way to his own death. Saw it again in 2015. There's a young man named Dylan Roof walked into a church in South Carolina and opened fire with a rifle, killed nine people. And at the hearing, one of the hearings of Dylan Roof, a number of the victims, victims' families, survivors, came forward and made victim statements. Members of the church, some of them had sat there that night in Bible study with Dylan when he came into the church as part of a Bible study before coming back and killing a bunch of people. And one after another, those church members expressed forgiveness for Dylan. One of them said, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never hold her again, but I forgive you. Another one said, we have no room for hating, so we forgive. Another one said, you have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts, and I'll never be the same. But as we said in Bible study, we enjoyed you, and may God have mercy on you. And when the world sees that kind of love, it sits up and pays attention. Well, the world's not always going to understand it. Sometimes they'll say, this is crazy. It's even dangerous, risky, naive. And maybe it is all of those things. But that's the same dangerous, risky, naive kind of love that God has had for us. And when the world sees that love, it may criticize, but it will at least know this is not a love you find anywhere else. This is not the common kind of love that people show each other. What we're doing when we take these kinds of radical steps, and it may not be anything nearly that dramatic for you, but when you take even a fraction of a step like that, we are showing the world a different kind of love. We're showing the world a love they can't find among one another because it doesn't exist there. We're showing them a love that it comes from somewhere else. It comes from heaven down to earth. We're showing them a love that is so transcendent, it comes from the King of Kings. And so that step you take towards your enemy, hard though it is, it's not just for you, it's for the sake of the world, that you may witness to the love that comes down from heaven, the love of our Savior. So what does it mean then, practically, to live this out? How do we do it? How do we take these steps? Well, the most practical advice Jesus gives you in this passage is to pray. And, and he says, in, in, back it up in verse 44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the, the simplest thing and perhaps the most powerful thing you can do towards people that you really struggle with, people who make things difficult for you, people who are totally different to you, is simply pray for them. Pray God's blessing upon them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer again says this, This is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. That's a beautiful picture. Because what he's saying is when you pray for someone, it's like you're going to them. You're not literally, but you're just in prayer, you're going to that person and you're standing by their side. And for that moment, you're interceding to God for them and praying to God. That Praying for your enemy, praying for someone who's, who's really tough, that is an act of love for that person. They may never know you've done it. They may never see you do it, but you are loving them by praying for them. And when you pray for them, you're not praying, God, please rain down burning coals upon this person's head and dash their infants upon the rocks. It's not that kind of prayer. It's the prayer of blessing, okay? It's the prayer of love. We pray, God, have mercy on this person and bless them and help, and help things to go well for them and bless their family. It's really hard to pray this, isn't it? For people that you don't like, let's be honest. Come on. 
Just so I want you to conjure up in your mind, who is that person for you? If you have a hard time, by the way, figuring out who your enemy is, just think, who is the person in the world who makes you the most angry? They may be sitting beside you. They may be a long, long way away. They may be preaching to you right now. Who is that person? Who makes you angry? Who makes your skin crawl? That person or that group, them, the them, those people. Here, so here's my challenge to you, church family. I want to set you a seven-day challenge to pray for that person or pray for that community. Would you pray for them for the next seven days? And not the, not the condemning prayer. Pray the blessing of, of God on their life. Pray that God would bless them and keep them and make his face to shine upon them. What I've found is this. I can't prove this empirically, but I'm just going to say it. I think it's really hard to hold on to feelings of bitterness, resentment, and hatred when you are regularly praying for someone. Now, you prove me wrong, but I think this is maybe the way God's just wired us. That if you've got a heart of bitterness towards someone and you just you really just cannot stand them, when you regularly commit yourself to praying for that person, I think it gets harder to hold on to those feelings. You just find them start to melt away. I think the reason we don't do this is because we actually like those feelings. We like to hate that person, don't we? If we're really honest, in your heart, I know you'd never admit this to anyone, so let me just admit it for you. You love that feeling of hatred towards that person. You nurse it and you foster it and you cultivate it like a garden. That's our problem. We don't want to do this stuff because we secretly love those feelings. But here is the first step. You commit yourself to praying for seven days, blessing upon that person, and then you come and tell me next week how you're feeling. That's a bit of a risk, but you come and tell me next week, how's the anger in your heart? Maybe it's all still there, but you come and tell me anyway. As God, I just think God will gradually shift your heart. If you're open, if you, if you engage in this in the right spirit, I think God's going to shift your heart. Start there. Pray for that person. And then out of that, as you're praying for them, I think then that cultivates a heart and a spirit where maybe then it's a little bit more natural for you then to take a step towards that person. Who is that person? And is there one thing that you could do that might show love, kindness, grace, and compassion to that person this week? I remember uh, back around the time of the Christchurch mosque shooting, there was a group of Muslims that uh, we'd had a bit of contact with in Auckland. Some of you remember because they came to church one day. You remember that? And that was interesting. That's another story. But we, we, had, we had lunch with them, and we had a little bit of contact around that time. And it was r- not long after that that the uh, mosque shooting happened in Christchurch. And Anna and I just, just felt prompted in that time to get some flowers and drop them off to uh, one of these Muslim women that we knew. Um, we'd gotten to know her and her daughters a little bit. And she was just blown away. She was just amazed. And this is nothing great in us. It was just a really small little gesture. But she was just so moved that we would think of her and that we would consider her in, in that context and take this step. And it just really, it really softened her heart. And, and, and they opened up to us and shared how sometimes when terrorist attacks are perpetuated by so-called Muslims, it makes them, moderate Muslims, feel, feel scared for their lives. And they feel scared leaving their homes. And they, they shared some of these things and we had some good conversation. It was a small little act but it was just a simple act of loving a group that we could easily perceive to be our enemies, but it broke some ice and maybe turned one enemy into a neighbor in that moment. What does it look like for you? 
I wonder whether for some of you it just looks like maybe making contact with someone that you haven't made contact with for a long time. I think this is sometimes how it goes, that there's someone in your life and you are just in a frosty silence and you're estranged from that person because of stuff that they've done. And if I only knew what they'd done, I'd never be asking you to do this, but I don't, so I can. I want to challenge you this week. Make contact and reach out and break the ice. I know there's 10 reasons why you can't and if you only knew and how bad they are, but the Lord knows all of that. And Jesus still says, love your enemies. What about this week, sending the text? You be the one to break the site. Don't wait for them to do it. You be the one to make contact. Send a text. Look them up for a coffee. That long, frozen-over relationship, maybe now is the time to let it start to thaw. Maybe that is the step for you to take. Let me finish one more story, and then then we're done. Back in the 1830s, there was a a young Maori girl called Tarori. And she was being educated in a mission school. uh, She lived in Matamata. And there was a, a woman there who was a teacher, and she gave her a little Gospel of Luke, a little booklet, the Gospel of Luke in Te Reo Māori. And Tarori just loved this little booklet, loved this little gospel tract, just cherished it. She held it wherever she went. She even slept um, with it beside her. And one night, Tarori's, uh, some people from Tarori's tribe were camping a little way away from home, and a raiding party came over the hills and raided their campsite. Massive violence broke out. Massive chaos broke out. People lost their lives. And in all the chaos of that, Tarori was killed. She had a fatal blow to the head and she was killed as she lay in her bed. As she was lying there, she was still holding the gospel of Luke. And the raiding party took it. They, they assumed it would be tradable. So they took this little booklet off her. A few days later, Tarori's funeral took place and her father stood up to speak. And in, in this context, you would normally expect that he would decree Utu, revenge, upon those who had killed his daughter. But Tarori's father himself had come into contact with the gospel and his heart had been changed and softened. And at that funeral, he stood up and he said, there's been enough bloodshed. There's been enough violence. We are going to entrust this situation to God Almighty and we are going to pursue a path of peace and forgiveness. He preached forgiveness at the funeral of his own daughter. And there's a beautiful little ending to that story where the tribe that had killed Tarori. They had this little Gospel of Luke booklet, but nobody could read it until a visiting slave came along who had learned to read, and he could read out the Gospel of Luke for these tribes people. And the very individual who had killed Tarori, his name was Weta, and he heard the slave reading the Gospel of Luke, and his heart was stirred. And his life was changed. And in that moment, he decided that he would go and seek forgiveness from Tarori's father. And so he made the pilgrimage. And you can imagine how dangerous that was and what you would be expecting. He, he went into that fully expecting that he would lose his own life. And yet when Tarori's father saw him coming, rather than going to war against him and taking his life, the two men embraced and tears were shed and they hugged one another. And Tarori's father forgave Witter for the murder of his own daughter. And that's the power of the gospel. That's a story from our own history as a nation. The story of the gospel in Aotearoa and the story of the power that there is when lives are changed by Jesus. 
and hatred and vengeance and utu turns into love and forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the power of Jesus. That's the power of the Sermon on the Mount. That is the power of loving your enemies. And I pray that we might be able to, in some small way in our day, carry on Tarori's legacy. That we might have that same spirit within us that seeks love instead of hatred and instead of vengeance. That we might think about those people, that we consider the other, we consider them, we consider hostile towards us, and and people that genuinely make our lives difficult, people that insult us, people that exclude us, people who insult us, people who have wounded you deeply. And yet, we might have the posture towards those people to say, in spite of it all, I'm going to love you. I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to treat you with the dignity of being a human being made in the image of God because you are someone for whom Jesus died. The only way that you're going to be able to do that is if you first know the love of God who has died for you. Is if you take hold of the agape love of your heavenly Father who went to the cross from heaven to earth and from earth to the cross for you and for your sin, only when you grasp the incredible love your Father has had for you when you were his enemy, then you will be able to take hold of his spirit and allow that love to move out from you and through you into the lives of other people. It's never going to be our willpower that gets us there. We just don't have this love in us, do we? We don't have this. This is too hard. It's too hard at a human level, but by the divine strength of Almighty God and His Spirit, He will empower us to love our enemies. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear Your Word this morning, and it's really, really hard. And we just, I just sense that here, and there's just a heaviness. I hope it's a good heaviness, Jesus, and we just... We just sit in this and hear your words to us and we receive the challenge, but we still just find ourselves saying, Lord, I don't know that I can. It just, it's so, it's so beyond. It's so beyond me. Jesus, I'm really mindful. It's no, it's, it's, it's no words that I can say. Lord God, it is the power of your spirit. And I just want to pray now for for us as a church community, that you would fill our hearts with just a fresh awareness of your love for us and what it's cost you to make us your friends instead of your enemies. And God, would you place on our hearts those people now that in your power, you're calling us to love and help us not to look away from it, but to say, God, in your strength, I will take that step. In your strength, God, I will I will speak well. I will act well. I will speak with respect. Jesus, we pray that you would take our stubborn, selfish hearts and just pour your grace into our lives afresh. Just touch us by your spirit, God. We don't have it in us, but Jesus, in your strength and in your power, we can. So fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, God. We just really cry out for that this morning. We really seek a fresh touch of your Spirit, fresh awareness of your love flowing through us, out into the world, out into the broken places. Jesus, we love you, and we pray that you would send us out as your people 
to love the ones that you love, not just our neighbors, but even our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.